Our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews as we continue on in this great study. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 to 10 this morning. Hebrews 10 and verses 1 to 10. If you'd turn there in your Bibles, and if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1202. 1202. Our text continues this morning in this series of contrasts from this great book of Hebrews. The particular contrast is presented in a way that mimics the old line that we often hear. Well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. We're often used to hearing this in relation to a, a doctor's visit, be it real or pretend. The doctor comes in and says, well, Mr. Jones, I've got your results back and I have some bad news and I have some good news. Which would you like to have first? Well, the same contrast of good news and bad news is it's pictured in our text today. Now, our doctor's analogy is very familiar, but if this really occurred in our lives, it would be a very arresting situation. Such a contrast of good news and bad news lived out in the confines of a doctor's visit would certainly grab our attention. This kind of news would make us focus completely on the statements that the doctor was making. He would definitely have your full attention. Well, so it is with the contrast before us today. And this is where our title comes from, The Captivating Contrast of Christ. The Captivating Contrast of Christ. You could call this part two as we are moving along and began this message last week. We looked at the fifth contrast here in this main section of the book of Hebrews. And as we discussed Hebrews, the, the main theme as we've been going along is the superiority of Jesus Christ. This first few chapters of the book of Hebrews, the Lord was, was revealed as superior to the angels. This was very important because as this particular book is written to the Jewish church, they had exalted the perspective that they saw of angels. They saw as angels as actually God's advisors, that he had a, a special group that actually he would seek for counsel, which of course is absolutely ludicrous and contrary to scripture. But because of that, our author showed to us the superiority of Christ to the angels. Then he showed us the superiority of Christ to Moses. Again, they had exalted Moses to the highest possible location. And Moses was an amazing man. But Moses paled in comparison to Jesus. The third comparison they showed us was the comparison of the rest that Jesus provided alongside of the Old Testament Sabbath rest. Well, that Sabbath rest was a wonderful thing. It was a commanded thing. It was that which God desired of us so that we would take a day off. I don't know that there's any culture that has ever been any more work-focused than the United States. Now, that may be changing in our modern era, but over the last 50 years, it has become so prevalent that in other parts of the world, they actually kind of look down on us for that. If you go to Europe, they, in many parts of Europe, will take the entire month of August off almost as a country. The fact of taking a month off to most Americans is inconceivable because work is what we do. In fact, we work and we work and we work and we work so much that we would work seven days a week. 
Well, the Lord knew that, and, and thus the Sabbath rest. But far superior to that Sabbath rest is the rest that Jesus provides. It is the eternal rest that he holds out in heaven. And there's no comparison to the wonderful blessings of a day off to worship the Lord and to think about him as great as it is alongside of an eternity of rest with the Father and Son. So these comparisons showed the superiority of Jesus. And now we move to the superiority of Jesus over the high priesthood. That's what we started in clear back in chapter 4 at the end of it. And it was so important for them to understand the contrast of Jesus to the priesthood. Remember, for the true worshiper of Yahweh in the Old Testament world, the high priest was everything. It was the only way that they could get to God. And the high priest only had that access one time per year. So they revered that priest, those that were the true worshipers. He embodied their entire religious world. Unfortunately, as is often the case, it became a man-centered worship. It became a, a works-based religion where they thought they could earn their way to God through this high priest. And he became this exalted figure. That's very much like we see in the confines of Catholicism today. Where they have exalted the Pope to the place where as the Pope speaks, his words are equal to Scripture. Tradition of men equal to the Word of God. Clearly a huge problem. Well, our author has detailed Jesus' superiority by way of these contrasts since we began in this main section. He compared the old system of Judaism to the new ministry of Christ. He compared the ministries of the high priest to Jesus. He compared the covenants of the old system to the new covenant of Christ. He compared the old tabernacle in the wilderness to the eternal heavenly tabernacle. He then last compared the blood of the sacrifices to the blood of Christ. And in each comparison, there was an ever bigger, an ever widening gap between the old system and the new system. Like a, an unrepaired pair of jeans, the tear in the knee just keeps getting bigger and bigger unless it is dealt with. Well, the difference between Jesus and the high priesthood is becoming ever and ever increasing. It's becoming an irreconcilable distinction. There's no way that you could hold to the Old Testament system. Because it is so clear that the superiority of Christ excels in every way all that is known of the old high priesthood. Rationally, there's no way that you could not consider Christ. Well, now, as these contrasts ramp up, we get to our fifth contrast, which is the contrast of the sacrifices. Now, there's a lot of parallels between the fourth and fifth contrast. That fourth contrast was of the blood and now the sacrifices. There's a lot of, of integral elements between the blood and the sacrifice. But really, the blood was a singular element. It was one component of the sacrifice. And now we look at the overall picture of the sacrificial element. The picture of, of everything in its entirety. The, the blood was like a, a single component or event. Somewhat like an eclipse alongside of the study of the entire universe. A, a contrast of a moment in time versus a magnificent panoply of all that was involved. 
The contrast of the blood was again more of this single condition like the point of time element of an eclipse. But the sacrifice is a much broader perspective. A consideration of all of the universe, all of the stars and planets and their movements. It's like the universe as the sacrifice of Christ is the single defining element for which all of the universe exists. So in our examination is this strong picture of contrast very much like the good news and bad news scenario that we talked about. Last week we looked at the bad news in verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews 10. And with this we examine the bad news of the contrast of the sacrifices. Let's go ahead and take a look at our text and read through these verses and then begin to understand what they're telling us. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, last week we looked at these introductory portions, the bad news, if you will, in verses 1 to 4. And, and in those, in verses 1 to 2, we saw that false sanctification that occurred. The bad news of the contrast began by taking us back to the Old Testament law in verse 1. This, as we discovered, was the Mosaic law and the sacrifices which are continually offered year by year. These yearly sacrifices focusing us on one particular event of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that one day where the high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, and to bring the sacrifices, first for himself and for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And it was a very dramatic point in transition. But we keep in mind that the Day of Atonement, the sins which were covered on that day, were those unknown sins. And they were, the, they were the superficial sins. These were the, the sacrifices in which there was an external cleansing only which could be accomplished. For the Hebrews, these sacrifices of the law, as verse 1 tells us, could never make the worshiper perfect. 
their cleansing again was only external, only superficial. We saw this back in Hebrews chapter 9. The Day of Atonement was cleansing for violations of food regulations or of washing regulations. So these were only external and minor and unknown even at that. Thus it was just this external cleansing. It was a false sanctification. It was further described as a shadow of the good things to come and that shadow did reveal that from which it was cast, but it was not the real thing for no shadow ever could be. It's very much like if you were out and you were examining that eclipse. Okay, If you didn't have those special glasses that you could purchase from I'm not exactly sure where, um, then what you would do is you'd use the old school method that we used to use, right? You'd put a pinhole in a piece of paper and you'd take a piece of cardboard and you'd look at the shadow. You didn't see the whole thing. You didn't get the big picture. You just saw this momentary speck. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices in the same way were just a shadow, just a, a, a picture of what was there, but not the full revelation. As the scripture says there in verse 1, not the very form or not the image. This is why verse 2 spoke of the obvious contradiction in their continuing. If they were truly, if this was true sanctification, then there would be no reason for the sacrifices to go on if they truly cleansed, but they did not. Not only didn't they cleanse, but they didn't even ease the conscience. Instead, there was the continual building and burden of sin. So the bad news was that the old sacrifices were just these false sanctifications. And then in verses 3 and 4, the bad news continued as these old sacrifices were not just the false sanctification, but they were the failed substitution. What those sacrifices did do was provide a reminder of sin year by year. And the way that they did that was by examining what was happening in that sacrificial system. Realizing all of the blood that was being shed, seeing the gore that happened with that, it was to take men to a place where they would stop and understand that there was a very serious situation that was going on. There was a transaction here that was much, much more than simply a superficial cleansing. That there was a deep element. There was a deep offense. And that offense was sin. These were a strong reminder, a picture of what needed to be dealt with for sin. Well, as we just discussed, it wasn't even the full situation, but these were just a shadow. And it was impossible for these sacrifices to take away sin, as verse 4 confirms. It's an emphatic statement indicating that never has there been any chance that these sacrifices could take away sin. There wasn't even the slightest opportunity, but yet for the worshiper, for the Jewish person, this had held all of their hope. This is what we've observed for all of our lives, for all of the lives of our ancestors. But we're seeing that it is only superficial, only a shadow well, these old sacrifices were that failed substitution. Well, this is indeed bad news. There's, of course, much greater detail in these verses, and I'd refer you back to last week's message for a more detailed version of these first two points. 
But arguably, this is the bad news. If you're at the doctor and you get this kind and this caliber of bad news, you'd be thinking, what could possibly be good in light of this? What could possibly be something that would lift me up in light of this horrific news? Well, the good news, beloved, comes in our last point, beginning in verse 5. The full satisfaction is what I've titled this third point. The full satisfaction. Verses 5 to 7 begin to address the beginning of this. Look at verse 5 with me again, if you would. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. Our verse begins here with a conjunction that connects everything that was just covered. That word, therefore. It's as if to say, because of all of this, because of all that we saw, because of all of that bad news, because of that false sanctification, because of all of the components of the failed substitution, all of the old sacrifices, because of all of that that's entering the world, he now says this. The the he is the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see in just a moment. But to fully understand this, we need to turn to another text. So I'd ask you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 40. Psalm chapter 40. Keep your fingers here in Hebrews 10, because you're going to want to compare and contrast the distinctions in these verses. But turn to Psalm 40, page 574, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Psalm 40 is a psalm that is written by King David. It's one of the psalms which has portions of prophecy amidst portions of David's own life and details. The psalm is incredibly intricate with the detail that it brings forward. It connects to Psalm 70, it connects to Psalm 22, and of course has extensive New Testament prophecy. It is an incredible study, although obviously we're not going to have time to get into all of those details. I would commend it to you as a wonderful devotion and a place to follow those cross-references and really see the depth that David is bringing forward. For our purposes, we're going to fast forward to verse 6, where our quote from Hebrews 10.5 begins. Our quote from Hebrews 10.5-7 actually is contained in verses 6-8 to of Psalm 40. So as you move back and forth, you'll be able to parallel those verses. Look at Psalm 40 and verse 6 with me. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Notice first off in these verses that there is a conversation that is going on. When we began and we look at verse 6, there are all of these second-person pronouns, the yous of verse 6. You have not desired. You have opened. You have not required. Then when we get to verse 7, it changes, and we go to first-person pronouns, the I and the me. I said, I come. It is written of me. I delight. 
This is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. We are given a picture into an inner Trinitarian conversation. We're brought into the very throne room where I, the Lord Jesus Christ, is speaking to you, God the Father. The first line of verse 6 is very similar to Hebrews 10.5. If you turn back and forth, you can see that really the only distinction in Psalm 40 is that it uses the word meal, the meal offering. So essentially there is no change. The meaning of this is that God is not seeking mindless and heartless sacrifices. Sacrifices and meal offerings you have not desired. These do not appease God. They're not what he desired. Now we know that God did command the sacrifices. That's where they were instituted. So what does it mean here when he says you have not desired them? Well, what we recognize here is that it is not just a sacrifice. It is not just a mindless killing of an animal. The point is that there is to bring a continual reminder of sin. Remember, that's just what Hebrews 10.3 said. That it is a year-by-year year reminder of sin. We know that this God is not telling them not to sacrifice because that would contradict with Scripture in the book of Leviticus. And we know full well that there is no contradiction in God's word. He's asking them to really recognize what's going on with these sacrifices. Now, I'm thankful that I've moved to a community where many of you either grew up in or even practice some hunting and fishing. Now, that's an important thing because there is something that goes along with hunting and fishing. And it is the killing of an animal or a fish. And, of course, with some of the bigger gulf fish, I know that you're not uh, gutting those animals out, but when you're talking about smaller animals or deer or even larger animals, there is that process where we're preparing the game to take it home. It's a very gruesome event. I'll never forget the first time I was with my grandpa and he gutted out a deer. Just kind of like, whoa, that's pretty gross. That's exactly what we're supposed to be thinking of in these offerings. Why did this happen? Why is there such a horrific sacrifice? Why, why all of this blood? Because the offense that is committed is horrific in God's sight, and it is an offense against him. And he wants us to be thinking about that. The focus here is that it isn't an act of blind obedience and sacrifice. It's not just that I, I take this little lamb with me and I take it in to the temple and the priest gives me the knife and he stands there with me and I take the life of the animal and I give my sacrifice and I kind of gut through it and get, get on with it and move forward. No. There's a time for us to stop. It's, it's the heart attitude behind the sacrificial system that God is pushing for. Psalm 51 and verses 15 to 17 describe this hard attitude. Describe what God is looking for. David writes in Psalm 51 and verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He wants a mouth that praises him. Why? Because the scripture tells us that out of the out of the heart, through the mouth, flow the intentions of man. He wants to understand that there is, there is a brokenness. There is a contrite heart. There is an understanding that we have offended a holy God. And that's what he is calling us to recognize. The same concept of this is revealed in the beautiful conclusion to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 and verse 14 read, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is our words which are the exemplification of that which is going on inside us. And he tells us that the words of our mouth, of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts are to be pleasing to God. God wants those who are fully committed to him, who are recognizing all that we are and all that we do which offends him. Upon the initial review of this second line of Psalm 40 and verse 6, it seems very different than Hebrews 10:5, doesn't it? We look at Psalm 40 and verse 6 and that second stanza it says, "My ears you have opened." You can look in between those two texts. And then Hebrews 10.5 says, A body you have prepared for me. The question that we got to ask at this point is, what's the difference here? Are these the same? Did, he, did the author of Hebrews move somewhere else to get the quote? Well, it seems very different, but in reality it is not. To understand, we first realize that in Psalm 40, the literal meaning of the word opened as in my ears you have opened, the word is well translated as dug or dug out, even carved or formed. The picture is God forming the ears of man. He is preparing the ears of man. Well, why? What do we do with our ears? We hear, we receive instruction. So this is the psalmist describing God's preparing the ears to receive the instructions of God. This is the same intent as our passage in Hebrews. The idea of God preparing man is conveyed in both passages. This preparation is, is pictured through creation. Both creation of man's ears in Psalm 40 and creation of a body which has been brought forward in Hebrews 10.5. This idea that's being promoted for us, beloved, is that of obedience. It was hinted at in the first stanza and again here in the second. God opened or dug out or carved the ears to hear. God prepared a body to be obedient. Now, it's not immediately evident that the obedience is being hinted at here, but it will be. So make a note of it, and we'll see more of it as we move along. But just mark that in your minds, this connection to obedience. The third line of verse 6 is similar to the first. It's a, it has a little difference in the offerings that are in view, but the emphasis is really the same. The third stanza actually becomes verse 6 in Hebrews 10, but that's no problem for us. 
We recognize that the verse numbers are not inspired. They did not come at the beginning of the text. And so uh, there's, there's no issue that those change slightly. But in Hebrews 10.6, it uses the phrase whole burnt offerings to describe the different sacrifices that have previously been discussed. But the point is to highlight all the different sacrifices. The repetition of the first and third stanza here of verse 6 really focuses us on what's in between. We have sacrifices at the beginning, sacrifices at the end, but it's what's in the middle. My ears you have opened, or a body you have prepared for me. All of these focus us on the importance of this obedience, this heart to obey. And again, we'll see more of that in just a moment. Verse 7 of Psalm 40 has the same words from Hebrews 10.7. The coming which is proclaimed in this verse where it says, Then I said, Behold, I come. That coming is the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prophetic statement talking about Christ's first coming. And as he came to the earth, so this prophetic verse was fulfilled. The second stanza there of verse 7 is foretelling of the scroll of the book as a reference to the continuous proclamation of Messiah in the Old Testament. Likely the Pentateuch is being referenced, the first five books of the Bible. But nearly every book of the Old Testament has a direct reference to the coming of Messiah, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Pentateuch is replete with them. Just a few examples if you want to write down and follow those up later. Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel, what we call the Proto-Evangelium. In Genesis 22, the picture of Isaac and his sacrifice, a picture of Christ. Exodus 12, the Passover sacrifice, another picture of Christ. Exodus 17.6 and Numbers 20.11, the water which came from the rock in Horeb which was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Levitical sacrifices, all pointing to Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy 32, Deut Deuteronomy 33, all of them with multiple references to the prophetic coming of Messiah. Jesus spoke of these very things himself in John chapter 5 and verse 46. The Lord said in John 5, 46, for if you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote about me. As he's talking to the Pharisees and they're denying all that he's saying, he tells them, if you knew your own book, if you knew the own law which you profess, you would recognize that it speaks about me. It's exactly what was going on in Luke 24, 27. I, I think Luke 24 is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it is so encouraging in our walk with the Lord. In Luke 24, 27, it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Can you imagine what that was like, beloved? Can you imagine? Here you are, you've had this horrific event Everybody's been building. They've been looking for Messiah. They think they finally found him. He's come. This is him, isn't he? And then he's crucified. And you are bummed out and you are walking home. 
You know, it's, it, it's one of these things. It's like, you know, you've been training all year for the football game. It's a big game. It's, it's the win. We're going to get it. We're going to have the championship. And you lose. And it's just dejection. They're all walking home. And the Lord comes up alongside the two disciples. And, and, and he asks them, what's going on with you? And, and they look at him like, are you a crazy man? Do you not know all that's happened this day in Jerusalem? And they, and they go on to tell him about the crucifixion of Jesus and all these things. And, and so then we get to this verse and he begins to explain to them. And he opens the Old Testament. And he tells them all that is revealed in the Old Testament about them. You know those few verses that I just gave you? They are a fraction. We don't even know all that he explained about himself. We don't even understand yet all that the scripture tells us about Christ. And he explained it to them. And they're listening and they're walking and these seven miles, I'm sure, passed like a flash. And they get to the house and Jesus is going to go on. And they said, no, 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 come, please. Stay the night with us and, and share a meal with us. And as he breaks the bread, their eyes are open to who he is. And he leaves. And what do they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? How glorious it is that the word of God would burn within us. That we would be so excited, so ready to see more of Christ. So ready to just understand more about what Messiah tells us. This is what was written of him. The first stanza of verse 8 becomes the last stanza back in Hebrews 10.7. You can kind of look back and forth at those. The wording's slightly different, but the intent is clearly the same. The Son came to do the will of the Father. And here in this verse is confirmed the idea of obedience. This is part of our last point, the full satisfaction. Jesus came to do the Father's will, to satisfy fully God's desire. So this is our quote from Hebrews 10. Let's go ahead and go back to Hebrews chapter 10 now and continue on in our discussion now that we've looked at the parallels of these quotes. Back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9 of this text, we see really what becomes a summary statement. Hebrews 10 and verses 8 and 9 really take Psalm 40, 6 to 8, and they just summarize it where it says, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. It is at this point that we have to stop and ask why. Isn't it? I mean, when we consider the flow of these 10 verses of Hebrews, what is this discussion all about? How does this quote fit with the sacrifices in verses 1 to 4? They seem like they're totally disjointed. It's like, do these even fit together at all? How do those first four voice verses jump into this quote from verses 5 to 9? Not desiring sacrifices for the sake of killing animals, but rather from a pure heart, i.e. a heart of obedience. A body prepared for the Lord, one to do the Father's will. How does that fit in with these failed sacrifices? 
uh, as we understand these components, and we might be tempted at this point to say, you know, we don't get the context. We might even want to throw up our hands in confusion and say, I just don't see how this comes together. It's all drawn back in the middle of verse 9. Look there again in the middle of verse 9. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The first and the second are the sacrifices. The first are the Old Testament sacrifices. The second are the sacrifice, is the sacrifice of Christ. He takes away the first to establish the second. This is the ultimate expression of doing the Father's will. That which we saw at the end of verse 7, to do your will, O God. And the way Jesus does this is through the body that has been prepared for him. Through the body, the Lord does the will of the Father. Through a body, through his fleshly body, which God put him into as he dwelled and walked upon this earth, he is able, and only in that fashion, is he able to carry out the Father's will. Nowhere is this more evident than in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to Matthew 26 and verse 39 in light of this taking away the first to establish the second and the body which has been prepared. Matthew 26 and verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. The most difficult time in Christ's life is marked by his preparation in a body to do the will of the Father, even desiring and, and asking if there be any way, but always as the Lord's will. Again, a few verses later, in Matthew 26 and verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. The complete determination of Christ to do the will of the Father through a body that has been prepared, through a sacrifice that was not a mindless sacrifice, through not something that was just simply done out of unthinking commitment, but out of full reverence, out of a full understanding for what was involved. This is the taking away of the first in order to establish the second. This is the full satisfaction in the most dominant terms. Then verse 10 wraps this all together where it says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, by this will, by his will, by his obedience to the Father through a body that was prepared for him. Behold, I have come to do your will, it said back in verse 7. He is completely committed to that which God would call him to. It is through this will or through this desire of Christ which we have been sanctified have been sanctified. Notice carefully the verbs in verse 10. Have been sanctified. A past tense action. We have been from the foundation of the earth. God has known those who are his. 
He has chosen and he has sanctified and he has called out those. And then it is a continuing action. Blood is a continuing action that takes us through this very moment as I speak. God is desiring of sanctifying you more and more at this very second. There is that positional sanctification, which is ours in Christ. We are seen as holy. We are seen as being in the righteous white robes of Christ. We have received from him his alien righteousness, and he has taken on himself our sins, the great exchange, as we like to call it. But then there is a progressive element to this sanctification. There is the day-to-day walk of our lives. That which God is doing, but which we also must participate in. We must recognize these ongoing elements, this parallel of the positional versus the progressive. And that is what is entailed in those beautiful verbs. By this will, we have been sanctified. Through the will or through the desire of Christ, this glorious process but it's all by the will of the Lord. When we go through difficult circumstances, when things in our life are hard, and we're not sure why this is all happening, we're not sure how we're going to get through, when we struggle with sin personally, corporately, in those kind of times, we can recognize that it is by the will of God that we are being sanctified. He is working through all of it. He knows everything that's going on. There are no random events. There are no stray molecules on this earth. God is working all of it. All of it for his good. As one of my brothers often says, and rightly so, all things are not good, but all things work together for good. What a praise. What a praise. How much we can rejoice in Christ. How much thanks we can give to him because of this. And it all came at the price of his sacrifice through the body prepared for him in verse 5. Through his obedience. Through an offering that was not a mindless sacrifice, but rather was the most extreme and radical act of his will. Think about all that our Lord went through. He was marginalized throughout his entire life. When we're marginalized, but for a bit, it's very difficult for us. You know it, and I know it well. And sometimes we don't do so great when we go through those difficult times. The Lord spent his entire ministry being marginalized. And that was nothing. That was nothing, beloved. Then he got to Gethsemane. Then he got to crying out to his father, falling on his face, and weeping with loud wailing and sweating great drops of blood. And that was just the beginning. From Gethsemane to Gabbatha to the pavement where he would endure the lashes and the whips two different times as Pilate commanded, hoping not to break his will but to break the will of the Pharisees to crucify him. But they were unyielding. They continued to cry out with the crowds who had just seven days earlier cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they are screaming for his blood. Crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. How horrific, how depraved, how grotesque is that? And yet that is what Christ endured. This is the once for all 
sacrifice for sin. This is no heartless, mindless sacrifice. This is a sacrifice of infinite worth. This is a sacrifice that the whole universe has been pointing towards and will forever reflect upon. Beloved, this is the most extreme expression of good news imaginable. Romans 8.3 well summarizes this bad news and good news contrast. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law couldn't do it. It was weak because of the flesh of man. It was weak because of the flesh of the sacrifices. There was no forgiveness. There was no cleansing. There wasn't even a release of the conscience. But God, in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, isn't it great to know, beloved, that whatever we walk through, whatever trials come into our lives, whatever burdens we face, Jesus has known it all. He's been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. What a glorious picture of our Savior, His Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin and therein condemned sin in the flesh. A body prepared. I came to do your will. Every illustration falls short But imagine that bad news of the doctor's office. You've been a heavy drinker your whole life. Your kidneys have not been able to process all of that, and they've failed. Your body and your veins are in such a shape that you can't do dialysis. Sudden death seems imminent. And then, your father... The only one who is a match. He gives you his kidney. As he gives you his kidney and and you've taken it, you awake only to find out that what they didn't realize is that his other kidney was on the verge of failing and has failed and he has died. Your life has now become one for two. The wastefulness of considering that one might go back and return to a life of alcoholism and drinking and waste that which has been given? The waste not just of one life, but two? Beloved, we have been given a new life by Christ. He has given his life for us. The righteous and the holy one for us. Unrighteous, wretched, disgusting sinners. A body has been prepared for us as well. How are you inhabiting it? How are you fulfilling texts like Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2? Therefore, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How are you doing with the bodies that have been prepared for you? Are you a living and holy sacrifice? Do you recognize your spiritual service of worship? How easy for, is it for us to be sucked in by the things of the world? The enemy is at work tearing apart the fabric of this country. Tearing apart the foundation of the family. Tearing apart the moral law which God has established. Tearing apart authority. Desiring to polarize every element in our societies and even within our churches. When we see these racist things coming up and we're tempted to be drawn into one side or another, oh, this is right, that's right, what we understand is that none of it is right because it is all sin. It is all an expression of hate and it has nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. These are not spiritual services of worship. These are the things that polarize and divide and destroy when we consider verses like Romans 12, 1 and 2, the question that we must ask is that question which Francis Schaeffer wrote in his wonderful novel, How Now Shall We Live? For us, beloved, today, in August 27th of 2017, how shall we live today? The right answer, beloved, is with a heart attitude of sacrificial living, a heart attitude of service, not a life of drinking, not a life of complaining, not a life of pointing fingers at the hate in this world of condemning this group or that group, but living with a new mind, living as Christ would have us live. My beloved brothers and sisters, it is that which we must ask ourselves every day are we living in honor and obedience of Christ's sacrifice? Are we loving Jesus more and more every day? Is our heart attitude one of being a living sacrifice? What more can I do? Who else can I minister? Who will the Lord bring me before today that I might share my Savior with? When these things are yours, beloved, all around you will know it. And we'll see that you have been captivated by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the captivating contrast of Christ. Of course, you have to know Jesus Christ. You have to recognize that in your life, each and every day, there is sin that rears its ugly head. It is part of our very flesh. We cannot escape it. Do you know this about yourself? Do you know the ways in which you sin? Do you understand your fleshly desires to pursue the world and all that it contains, be it love or lust or money or any of the billions of vices that the world would seek to individually draw you to? If you don't know those, then maybe you don't know this Jesus. You must understand that the only way to know him is to receive him, to recognize these sins and to confess those sins. Confess saying the same thing as Christ. 
to repent and turn from those sins, to say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I know there is this draw. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a young person, and I've just had the wonderful blessing for the last three months of having our sons with us that are off now in college. And yeah, we're whining a little about that, but we're trying to get better about it. But, you know, here they are pursuing degrees. How often we have to tell them that you must recognize that this is a gift God has given you. If you're pursuing money, if you're pursuing fame, if you're pursuing glory, you are totally off base. I don't care if you're going to a Christian school or where you're going. But that's the draw of our world, is it not? That is not the sacrificial living of Christ. That is not gospel living. And if you are here today and you don't understand these things, I would plead with you to come to know Christ. To realize that if you don't know Jesus today, that these sacrifices that were of no value are better than you will ever have. God has called you to know his son. And that is the only way to eternal life. For Jesus is the only name under heaven and above earth by which men can be saved. Cry out to Christ today. Recognize his love, his desire for you. Come and speak with one of the leaders of our church that we can talk to you about Christ. Friend, if you aren't captivated by Christ, let me plead with you today. And beloved family, may we be daily examining our lives to more fully understand the obedience that our Savior calls us to to more fully understand the sacrifice that he has brought forward and by which we are sanctified. Because it is as he offered his body on the cross at Calvary that you and I are given new life. But we must live in light of that life. We must recognize that in this beautiful text of the old being replaced by the new sacrifices, that there was a purpose. And that purpose is you. The Lord loves you. The Lord wants you to know him and love him more. The Lord wants you to live for him. The Lord wants you to carry forth the gospel message because you are the A-team. There is no B-team, there's no second string that's waiting downstairs when we all walk out of here to come in and start again. It's us. And it is a glorious privilege and a true delight so consider that which the Lord has shown us and may you be the one who is captivated by this contrast of Christ.